as we gather to worship in this room every Sunday, you may notice the five paintings on the wall on the one side of our sanctuary. Or you may not notice them because you notice them every single Sunday. And one of the things about noticing something all the time is we start to not notice them. But the, the paintings on this side of the sanctuary are there for a reason besides just to add some beauty and color to the sanctuary. They also send a message of five values that we have as a congregation that come right from Acts chapter 2. And so it's good to draw our attention every once in a while to these five paintings to remind ourselves of what these values are for us as a church and also for us as individuals. So the trees are an acronym for the words that you see on each painting, which are teaching, relating, exalting, evangelizing, and serving. In Acts chapter 2, we witness these five things being played out by the church at its birth. It talks there about Peter, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he is anointed with the Holy Spirit, he goes out and he preaches the message of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that can be found in Jesus, and it says that the church is born with 3,000 people becoming saved with that first evangelistic message. We see the church born through evangelism, and that is one of the letters in trees. Without evangelism, the church will cease to exist. Evangelism is new birth in the church continually as we share our message to our own children, to people that don't know Jesus outside the doors of the church, to our neighbors, to those that are at our workplaces. But that's not the end. Evangelism is birth. And so what Acts chapter 2 goes on to say is that after Peter preaches this message, all these people decide to commit themselves to faith in Jesus Christ. The next thing that it says is that they then devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. And the church has always been, right from the beginning of time throughout history, a big proponent of education. It's one of the ones that is behind the liberal arts movement and universities and schools. The monastic movements has always been the heartbeat of where education and literacy and that has come from because of its devotion to the apostles' teachings and also really to the whole tradition of the Old Testament, the prophets as well. And so the T is for teaching. As a church, we're committed to evangelism, spreading the news of Jesus so new people can be born in Christ and then be devoted to the teachings of Scripture. It goes on to say then that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That's the next word that it has in Acts chapter 2, and that is the relating in trees. They devoted themselves to teaching and to relating, fellowshipping, becoming a new community, a new people a new family, a new body. All these different analogies are given in Scripture. And then it says, they also gathered together in this new fellowship for the breaking of bread and for prayer. In other words, they came for corporate worship. They ate together, broke bread together in a symbolic way as well to remember Jesus is dying on the cross. Uh, they prayed together, and that is the exalting. The church evangelized 
and then devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to exalting. And then it goes on to say that they also began to sell everything they had and gather all of their resources and their money, and they looked around their fellowship, and those that were in need, they gave to the poor, the widows, the orphans. That's the service, the last part of the trees. They were a church that was dedicated to serving the less fortunate. These five values have been lived out in the church throughout history. And when the church is healthy, it has lived these values out well. As I mentioned last week, it doesn't always look the same. The Bible doesn't give us a formula for how to live out these five values, but it shows the church acting them out. And so services look very different in different cultures. Teaching has looked very different. Uh, even today, with all the technology and things, teaching is changing the way that teaching was done 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Things continually change the way we fellowship, even in different countries in the world. Some fellowship and have to fellowship hiding and underground in small little house churches. Other people fellowship in huge, massive cathedrals. Fellowship has looked different and continues to look different, as well as some of the other values there as well. The important thing, though, is that these things are living in alive in a church, teaching, relating, evangelizing, exalting, and serving. Now, the book of Acts begins with Jesus' ascension into heaven. And then after he ascends into heaven, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, this is what we see birthed, this kind of church in action. Now, I mentioned last week that we we're going to be starting a series on the book of Acts. What we're going to be doing, though, is the next couple of weeks, we are going to spend some time in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at these five values, remind ourselves of what they are and why they're important, and we'll also talk specifically, start, especially starting next week, about some, some direction and how we want to try to live some of these out. So we're going to be spending the next couple of weeks in Acts chapter 2, and then in order to align ourselves with the church calendar, we are going to then go back to chapter 1 so that on the Sunday that's close to Jesus' ascension, we are going to talk about the ascension there. And then the next Sunday, which is Pentecost Sunday, we're going to do Pentecost on that Sunday. And so we'll align ourselves with the church here. And then when we're done that, then we're going to go to chapter 3 and continue on with the book. So I just want to apologize now to everybody out there who's OCD. And the fact that we're going to progress through the first three chapters of Acts by going chapter 2, chapter 1, and then chapter 3. So I know some people are just twitching with that, but that's the process that we're going to take, and that is because of the things that I've just described here. So we're going to land today in Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bible and you want to open it up, you can turn in Acts chapter 2 and look at verse 37. And it's this beginning process here of these five values. Today, we're going to be looking at the evangelism in the trees because that's what started it all off it says so peter the context peter has just preached this message which we'll look at in a few weeks later but peter just preached this evangelistic message about who jesus is and what he's come to do and then it says that peter's words pierced the hearts of the listeners and they said to him and the other apostles brothers what should we do 
And Peter replied and said, Each of you must repent of your sins. You must turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles who have been called by the Lord our God. And Peter Peter continued to preach this for a long time, strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Though I skipped it for our current purpose, as I mentioned before, it is important for us to realize that this event that I just read has taken place after the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's important for us to keep that in mind because evangelism ultimately, in regards to changed hearts, is a work of God. It's not something that can be accomplished through human ingenuity. It is an act of God, and it's something that God always initiates. Now, that doesn't mean human ingenuity is bad. It doesn't mean that humans don't come together and think of different ways in which they can strategize and reach their community and communicate the gospel in effective ways. But behind it, we need to always recognize that without the power of the Holy Spirit, it will all be futile. That it's the Holy Spirit that ultimately converts the heart. No matter who we are, what we do, if we're friends and we've got neighbors and we're sharing the gospel to them, if we're a preacher or if we're a missionary, when somebody comes to faith in Christ, it's never ultimately because of what we have done. We may have been used by God in the process, but it is because God has done something to which they have submitted their heart to. It's a work of God. God starts, God anoints, God calls, God saves, God guides Without God, the scripture is fairly clear, true repentance is not possible. Now, there's a mystery to this whole idea of free will. But at one point, the scripture is fairly clear that we don't really have free will. That all of us, our will is bound by sin And is not free. And that unless God moves, repentance is not possible. Unless God does something, our free will has not been freed. We cannot make a personal decision for Jesus on our own. It's not something that we can accomplish. It's not something that we can will ourselves. This whole idea is important to remember because without it, we can somehow think that we can save ourselves. We can either work ourselves into salvation or we can be smart enough or we can will ourselves to change, but it's all about surrender. It's all about recognizing what God has done and that we are surrendering to a work of God. And even the surrender is somewhat a gift of God. So the mystery behind that is that we even need to pray and say, Lord, in some ways I don't fully understand it all, but I even need to thank you for the fact that I've been able to surrender. Because it is your work 
Without you, I would not even be able to surrender. But there's more to this whole surrendering and repentance than just making a personal decision for Jesus. Sometimes in the modern context of the church, we have reduced repentance to just that act. A individual, personal decision. We pray a prayer or something like that, and we reduce repentance to being all about that. But when you look at this chapter here in Acts, you see that repentance involved at least four different elements to it. Again, Acts is not meant to be read formulaic in the fact that this always happens exactly in this order and that, but it does implicate that these four things all accompany true repentance. First off, obviously, is the very act of repentance itself. Peter preached, each of you must turn from your sins and turn to God. The acceptance of Jesus Christ is more than just an intellectual acceptance. It's more than just intellectually saying, yes, I understand that there was a man by the name of Jesus who 2,000 years ago lived, died on a cross, and maybe I'm even convinced that he really rose from the dead. I believe those things. I could stand up and I could say the creed. And I could say I intellectually assent to those things in the creed. That's good. But becoming a Christian is more than just agreeing with statements of faith. It's also an act of repentance. It's also saying that not only do I intellectually believe these things, but I also recognize that I am a sinner. And that I have to surrender myself and say, Lord, forgive me. I am someone who has rebelled against you. My heart's desire is selfish. I would rather live for myself than for your ways. Even though I recognize sometimes that my ways are kind of stupid and can even lead to death, there's something that wants to push you away and wants to live for self. Repentance is coming to the recognition of that and saying, Lord, forgive me. I no longer want to walk that path. I want to surrender my life. I want to give it over to you. I want to acknowledge that I'm a sinner and say, take away my sin. That you not only historically died on the cross as an act in history, but that act was something that would forgive sin. And I want to claim that over my own life. That that death should have been my death, but you took it for me. I deserve to be on that cross, but you went to the cross for me. And so I take your sacrifice for me. I ask you to forgive my sins and give me new life, just like you rose from the dead three days later. That's what repentance is. Now, for some of us, what we are repenting of can look very different. So, for instance, my journey to repentance is a little bit weird. Because in my journey, I grew up in the church. From as far back as I can remember, I was pretty much immersed in the church. And it was something that I embraced very quickly. By high school, I was preaching in Edmonton in the inner city. 
I would go once a month to something called the Hope Mission, and at 15, 16 years old, I was preaching to inner city people. I was co-leading the church youth group. I was sharing my faith with friends. I was regularly reading through my Bible. I never got drunk. I never tried drugs. I was a virgin when I got married. And right after graduation, I went to a Baptist school and an NAB Baptist school at that to become a pastor. I mean, when it came to me, I thought that God had a first-round draft pick. I was it. I mean, I just had lived my life squeaky clean, and I was the one that was now going to serve God as a pastor and do great things for him. But with all this church culture and everything that I had been doing came a lot of arrogance, a lot of judgmentalism, and a critical spirit towards anyone else. I don't have time to go into my whole story here this morning, but God had to really start stripping things away from me when I was in university training to be a pastor and started to make me face the ugliness of the Pharisee within me. I think it's one of the reasons to this day, one of my favorite genres of literature to read is gothic novels because there's a theme throughout almost all gothic novels like the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde of, of this sort of hidden character that we all can have within us. We can put on the facade, but there's this hidden Mr. Hyde person, very appropriate name. And, and most um, gothic novels have that kind of theme running through them. And I could... I could relate as I had to start to really face my churchy self-righteousness and recognize that even my good deeds were often motivated by pride and an evil heart. It's also why I have some sympathies when I read the Bible. I often identify with the Pharisees. I probably would have been a Pharisee back then, a stout religious leader wanting to faithfully follow God, and seeing Jesus as a heretic. Many of the people that Peter preached to on this occasion were like me. Individuals that, in the first instance of the birth of the church, were essentially faithful God-followers, Jews, who had to come to a point that all of their good deeds, supposedly on the outside, all of their good deeds amounted to a lot of ugliness. In fact, a lot of times their good works even made their ugliness that much more ugly because of self-righteousness. And so they had to, too, come to repentance. At first, you might ask the question, when you look at it at the surface, what would these people have to repent from? I mean, these were Jewish God-fearing Followers, this first early church here that repented, these 3,000, they're not the far-off heathens that eventually later on in Acts we're going to get to. That These were faithful people. And yet, Peter calls them to repent. In fact, his message is pretty blunt. If you go back, and like I said, we're going to do it in a few weeks, if you go back, he points the finger right at these people and says, it was you who nailed Jesus to the cross. 
And for all of us, in a symbolic way, through our sin, we have done that. But Peter's meaning it very literal. A lot of you people here, a lot of this 3,000 here, you, some of you were there saying Hosanna in the highest when Jesus came into Jerusalem. And some of you here in this crowd were the very people who stood up and said, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. That's who were probably part of this first crowd here. The very people who said, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. What an amazing testimony where now it says that of this group, many of them repented and now believed. But what they had to repent of was their religious sins. The sins of the religious. Jerry Bridges has a book out called Respectable Sins. And the chapters in the book are things like impatience, irritability, anger, jealousy, gossip, envy, judgmentalism. See, growing up in high school, I may have never gotten drunk, but I had a lot of those other sins. And unfortunately, the church that I attended growing up was much more concerned that I don't get drunk than it was concerned about any of these other things. In fact, some of them were even considered virtues. Some of them got you on the board. Jesus was much more concerned with these respectable sins, quote-unquote. Jesus is really concerned with some of these deep-seated inner sins. And so in some ways, I have jokingly kind of half-jokingly, said that I actually only really started becoming a Christian after I started training to be a pastor. Because it was only in some of my early years in, in Bible school where I really realized I had to repent too. I can't just ride the accolades of growing up in church that I have to repent too. And ask for forgiveness for the respectable sins in my life. A personal inner decision of repentance had to be made. Now, for some of you, your journey is different. Some of you, maybe it's very similar to mine. Some of you are maybe still on that journey and have not yet got to the point of repentance. But the warning in the story is the fact that it doesn't matter if you are outside of the church, or if you grew up in the church, you have to repent. You have to come to a point in your life where you acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you need Jesus Christ. And just because you've gone to church all your life, sometimes that can blind you to the fact that you too still need to make a true, honest decision about repentance and who Jesus is. Well, the second thing we see in here is that not only did they make a decision of repentance, but what happened after that is that they were baptized. That baptism follows repentance. Which is why as Baptists, our denomination that we are a part of, we practice what is called believer's baptism. That is, is that what we practice is that repentance comes first, and then after repentance is your baptism, like what we see here 
in the book of Acts. So when you are baptized, we had a baptism on Easter Sunday, those people that were baptized were all believers. They were people that had repented. They were people that had made decisions to follow Jesus by asking for forgiveness. And then they were baptized as an act to visualize and symbolize the decision that they had made internally. The idea that one can be an unbaptized Christian doesn't even enter the mind of the New Testament writers. It, it, that doesn't make sense to them. For them, when you become a Christian, baptism is the automatic next step. Baptism is what follows a decision of being someone who has surrendered to Jesus. And so if you consider yourself a Christian, if you consider yourself someone who has repented of their sins and is a follower of Jesus Christ and you are not baptized, you have to ask yourself why. Sometimes people mistakenly think of baptism as, well, that's something for the mature. I have to obtain a certain level of spiritual growth before I can be baptized. But that's not how baptism works. That's not what baptism is about. Baptism is the beginning process. It's, it's the initiation into the faith. When you become a Christian, baptism is the next step to show that repentance publicly. Because the faith is never something that's just a private faith. Faith always, when repentance happens, is something that goes from internal to external. And baptism, and this is something, unfortunately, with some of our independent type of thinking today, is, is also something that we've kind of put into the private sphere. We've made baptisms. I've even been asked, you know, can you come over, baptize me in my backyard, and things like this. Baptism is a public event. Baptism isn't about simply the individual and their relationship with God. Baptism is also the church affirming what has happened. The individual, individual has made this declaration of faith, but it's also the church coming alongside and saying, we recognize and we affirm you in your faith commitment. It's connected with the body, which is also why uh, baptism, in many ways, is the initiation into the church. Baptism is, is the initiation rite into the body of Christ. When a person gets baptized, it's the church who baptizes. You can't have one without the other. So, repentance leads to baptism. Baptism leads to being part of the church. And all of this also leads to the filling of the Holy Spirit. The third thing we see in here is that, that, that Peter said, repent, be baptized, and then be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said earlier, I don't want to become mechanical about this, because whenever we start trying to become mechanical and formulaic, things become superstitions. And, and things become even legalistic rites, or even magical. That somehow, when you are dunked in the water, and you come out of the water, 
poof, some kind of magic happens to you and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you start speaking in tongues or something like that. That's not what this is saying. But that also means that we can't throw out that there's no connection to it. Because being filled with the Holy Spirit is coincided with obedience to Christ. You can't be in disobedience to Jesus and expect to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that Jesus commands us to do, in fact, the almost very first thing he commands us to do after repentance is be baptized. And so if his call to us is repent and be baptized, if Peter's call is repent and be baptized, and if John the Baptist's call is repent and be baptized, and we get to the point of repent, but you know baptism is kind of an optional thing, we can't then expect that we're going to be truly filled with the Holy Spirit while we are living in disobedience to the command of baptism. It doesn't make sense. We are filled with the Holy Spirit when we're obedient to Christ. And so... Being baptized is connected in the fact of obedience. Now, some may ask, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, the scripture gives us essentially two things in regards to what the Spirit does. There's actually a lot more, but sort of simplistically. Two, two areas. The Spirit fills us by giving us talents, and also fruit. Or you could say he gives us gifts and he gives us fruit. On the gifts thing, the Holy Spirit takes some of our abilities, natural talents that we have. Uh, some of us are good leaders. Some of us are good administrators. Some of us are good at hospitality. Some of us know how to give wise counsel. Some of us know how to just give very generously. And the Holy Spirit takes these talents, takes these abilities, and he orients them towards the building of his kingdom. So some of them are just reorienting of the talents you already have. Some of them, you might be a great singer or an artist, and then when you become a Christian, he begins to help you think of how you can use those very gifts for the kingdom of God. Sometimes the Holy Spirit also gives people supernatural gifts. He gives people the gifts of healing, of speaking in tongues, of giving a prophetic word. These are things that are described in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. We can see in Scripture gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to believers. But the other thing the Holy Spirit gives is fruit. And the fruit that the Holy Spirit gives directly is given to, it, to basically do a, a full attack against the quote-unquote respectable sins. All of these sort of respectable things inside of us, the impatience, the judgmentalism, the narrow-mindedness, the, the, uh, the, the lack of self-control, the anger, all of these different things that we struggle with with sin, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, this is the fruit that the Holy Spirit gives us. And you can hear how they're almost just a counter to those other sins. It says in Galatians 5... The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. These things, Paul even goes on to say, there is no law against such things. Which is also why uh, sometimes it's a very dangerous path to try to go, go down to, to try to legalize these things in law. You know, let's, let's put these things into law. You can't put those things into law. They're things of the spirit. The only thing you can put into law is you can put into law things to protect people from hurting other people. But you can't put into law and you can't make people love or be peaceful or patience, patient. Those are the kinds of things that need to be developed by the Holy Spirit. Those are the kinds of fruit. That means if you're a Christian, over the years, those are the things that you should be having more and more of. If you're a Christian, somebody should be able to look at your life and say, okay, if when I looked at you in 2009, and now it's 2019, in those 10 years, you are a more peaceful person. You're a more joyful person. You're a more loving person, kind person, good person, on and on. That means that you're filled with the fruit of the Spirit. If, if, if it's going in a negative direction, you've got some questions that you need to ask yourself. Now, what's important to note is that Scripture says that it is the fruit that we can use to recognize whether or not we are filled with the Holy Spirit or someone else is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not the gifts. Now, that doesn't mean that gifts don't come from the Holy Spirit, but the Bible warns very strongly not to use gifts as a sign of the Holy Spirit. You can be a gifted preacher and be not Holy Spirit filled. You can be a gifted leader, a gifted administrator. You can be even gifted. The, the, Jesus says that there will be some people who will, who will speak and, and give signs and wonders and do miracles. That means you can be a miracle worker and not be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of charlatans out there. So the Bible says don't be duped just because someone is extremely talented at something and even using it for God doesn't necessarily mean that that individual is Holy Spirit filled. The Bible says that how can you tell if someone's Holy Spirit filled? It's by the fruit. You always look at the fruit. The fruit is harder to fake, especially over the long haul. It's hard to fake love and joy, peace and patience and those kinds of things. That is how someone is recognized as being Holy Spirit filled. Now another thing we need to recognize about all of this stuff the Holy Spirit gives us, fruit and talents, is that it's all given to the church. It's all given to the church. The gifts actually belong to the church. So in a, in a way, it's a little bit mistaken to say, this is my spiritual gift. This is my spiritual gift. Really, it's the church's spiritual gift. The gift belongs to the church. If you want to give yourself some kind of a word picture, think of yourself as the wrapping paper. You're the wrapping paper that the gift comes in. If I have, if, if I can teach then it's the church's gift that that teaching is happening among them. It's not my gift. There's no good for me to 
as a teacher to stand in front of the mirror and teach myself and talk to myself and say, it's my spiritual gift. I'm just going to teach myself. That's, that's keeping the gift under wraps. It belongs to the church. And so all of us, as we discover what our spiritual gifts are, need to recognize how then can I give that to who it belongs to. Because if I am not giving it to the church, I'm keeping it under its wrapping paper. It's the same with the fruit. Fruit also, love, joy, peace, patience, all these things, is for the church. It's so that we as a church become the kind of environment where love, joy, peace, and patience is enacted. Because you need a community to do that in. How the world sees these fruits of the Spirit lived out is not so much in the individual, but in the church. Which is why it's so important, we're going to be talking about this in the next couple of weeks, is to start immersing your non-Christian friends in larger groups of Christians. You may be wondering, you know, I've been next-door neighbors to my non-Christian all these years, and it doesn't seem just me and them. It doesn't seem to be very effective in that. And there's some truth to that. It's because they need to see a community where these things are being lived out. They need to catch the atmosphere of saying, oh, that's what love looks like. That's what patience looks like. That's what... Um, um, long-suffering looks like. That's what all of these virtues are, which is also why a divisive church is the worst witness to the world possible, which is why Jesus prayed for our unity. The number one most effective weapon against evangelism for the devil is to get the church fighting with itself. It is the most destructive witness to Jesus Christ because all of these fruits of the Spirit are not being manifested. And then people look upon that and go, why would I want to be part of that? It's ugly. So the Holy Spirit gives us gifts and gives us talents and gives us fruit, and it's for the building up of the body so that the body can be a witness. Jesus prayed, Lord, may my people be one. May they be united just like I and you, Father, are united. And then he says, may they be one so that the world may know. May they be one because their oneness is a witness. And then the fourth part, which I've already alluded to, repentance can't be divorced from the church. Peter said repent. When they repented, the next thing was that they were baptized. Baptism is also an initiation into the church, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and the things that the Holy Spirit gives us are to be used in the community, which also means we need to be part of the community. So repentance then comes all the way to saying, yes, I'm part of a new family. That when I am born, born again, I am born into a new family. And that's why at the end of this it says, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church. None of these things were seen as separate things or optional. It doesn't say that those who believed what Peter said thought about being baptized and didn't join the church. It doesn't even consider those as options. They believed, they were baptized, they were part of the church. If you are a believing follower of Jesus Christ who's repented, you need to be part of a local church. It's not optional. 
you join a new community. Now, for those, these 3,000 people here, they would have seen themselves as simply joining Israel. And they were correct. See, in some ways, it's false to call Pentecost the birth of the church. Because really, the church was born with Abraham. Uh, You could call Pentecost the new covenant with God's people, the new covenant of the church. That would probably be more appropriate. But what happened, because what happened at Pentecost was a fulfillment of what God said to Abraham. Pentecost is not God's plan B. Uh, God didn't say, oh, Israel messed up, and so I'm going to try something different now. Um, Pentecost is not replacement theology. God is not replacing Israel with the church. Pentecost is simply fulfillment. The church and Israel are God's people. They always have been God's people, and they always will be God's people. Right from day one, God only has one people. Now, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, what has happened is what was more narrowly defined with those who were faithful in Israel. Now, with Pentecost, just as God promised to Abraham, the doors have been thrown wide open, and that now all of the Gentiles have been invited to join Israel, just as God promised. The way into Israel is not by blood. The way into Israel is through Israel's Messiah. From the Old to the New Testament, the way into Israel is through Israel's Messiah, both Jew and Gentile. That is why Paul writes this in Romans. Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only, note this, Not that circumcision automatically gets you in. Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith as Abraham. The kind of faith he had before he was circumcised. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what scripture means when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. And that's exactly what happened at Pentecost. That's why they spoke in tongues. And it shows us that now the gospel is going out to all nations. Because Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations. This was the message that so shocked the people of Israel. In fact, it's this primary message that it takes the whole book of Acts for the church to try to figure this out. It's going to take the Jewish church many bumps along the way to understand this. It's one of the main aspects of Paul's ministry. Even in this first sermon by Peter, we see Peter almost astonished in his own preaching at the truth of this. Acts 2.39, Peter says, The coming of our Messiah and Jesus, and now the coming of the Holy Spirit, is for you. Now remember, this 3,000 crowd, they're all Jews. They're all the ones that have recognized that Jesus is their Messiah that they've been waiting for. 
And this is simply the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Now they are seeing themselves as they are truly the Israel that God is calling. And Peter stands up and says, this coming of the Messiah and the coming of the Holy Spirit is for you. And every single one of them would have said, amen. And then the next words he says, and for your children. And they would have all said, preach it, Peter. And then Peter says, as almost if surprising himself, and even for the Gentiles. And then the crowd went silent. Now we can uh, sometimes fall into that same category too. We build this church and it's for you, yes. And it's for our children, yes. And it's for all those people in the community around here that don't look like us and think like us or smell like us. Oh, really? Yes. That's what Peter is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. It's for you. It's for your children and even for those Gentiles. That's what the promise was. And look what Paul says in Romans, the passage I just read. God promised to give Abraham the whole world. Not some chunk of land in Palestine today that people are still fighting over. It says this. It clearly says in Scripture. Clearly, it even says the word clearly. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants. And who are his descendants? Those of that are of the faith. And the father of many nations. It's the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth. The promise to God's children is not for a chunk of land in Palestine somewhere. It's not for a heaven up in the clouds somewhere. It is for this earth to be renewed. And we are going to live on the new earth as God's children in resurrected bodies for all of eternity. That was his promise to Abraham. And now in Pentecost, the new covenant is bursting forth as it has been for the last 2,000 years. I have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations. This is the family, and this is the inheritance promised to all those who repent of their sins. This is what it means to join the church. You join Israel. You become part of this people. The earth has been promised to you. The renewal of all things has been promised to you, and eventually it will come to its fulfillment when Christ comes again. This is our evangelistic message. This is the message that we have to share with the lost. This is the good news, what we call gospel. It's repent and believe. Turn from your sins. But we haven't done evangelism if we put the period there. It's also, and be baptized. And be filled with the Holy Spirit and become part of God's new people where your gifts and your talents and the fruit begin to grow in you as you anticipate and begin to live out now the renewal of all things. That's the full gospel that needs to be preached. And so we all have to ask ourselves, where am I on this journey? Am I still in rebellion against God? Still living for self rather than for my creator? Still choosing destructive attitudes and behaviors rather than recognizing that there can be real life found in Jesus Christ 
Maybe I'm at that point where I need to just repent. I need to finally surrender and commit myself to Jesus and recognize that my way of doing things is not working. Or maybe you're a believer and for whatever reason you have been resisting baptism. Maybe it's because of fear. Uh, maybe it's because you think it's unnecessary. Maybe you've been falsely led to believe that you've got to be a super saint before you get baptized. But baptism isn't a graduation. It's a beginning. Christ calls you to obedience. And one of the very first steps of obedience is be baptized. It's hard to be obedient to Jesus and all these other things when we haven't done step one. Be baptized. That's all I ask you. It's really a very simple process. Follow me in this. And then we'll start upping the ante after that. Be baptized. If this is something you'd like to do, contact me. I actually met with a couple this morning that's planning to get baptized in, in a, a few weeks or a few months here. And you could join that uh, couple as well and be baptized also. Let me know. Send me an email. Or maybe you are a baptized Christian, but you're uninvolved in the local church. Maybe it's because you've been hurt before. Or you feel burnt out. Maybe because it's unsure, you're unsure of how to get involved. Maybe it's simply because you're lazy. Or maybe you've got a bad attitude, and so you're trying to, I don't know, one-up the church with your bad attitude somehow. Whatever the reason, not involving and sacrificing your time and your money leads to spiritual death. The church is where you learn to grow as a Christian. And to pull yourself back is what leads to sinfulness and selfishness. Now, if it's because of past hurt or because of not knowing how to get involved, just talk to us, one of us pastors. We'd love to help you out to figure out how you can get involved. If it's because of laziness or a bad attitude, all I can do is warn you that you're committing spiritual suicide by doing that. And you too, like all of us, need to repent from your sins and turn from that and come back to Jesus. This is the church's evangelistic message. It's a message of repentance. It's for you. It's for your children. And even for those Gentiles. As one writer put it, if we are to be the salt of the world, we need to get out of the salt shaker if we're going to do any good. So next week, I'm going to start in the sermons describing to you some of the ideas the leadership team and the staff have been coming up with to try to push us out of the salt shaker, to be salt in our community so we can add flavor to the world. As Jesus commanded us to take our message even to the Gentiles. Let's stand as we sing our closing song.